invite you to turn your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 so we get a sense of the flow of the text. 1 Peter chapter 2, our text, uh, we'll be looking at verses 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12. Let's give our attention tonight to God's Word. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone, the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, as we come to your word now tonight, as we close out this day, we pray that you would give us, Lord, again, eyes to see. We thank you so much that the Holy Spirit attends your word, and so I pray, Lord, that that spirit would make this word sweet to us and encouraging to us. Lord, bless us as we give our attention to these uh, words inscribed by Peter, but inspired by the Spirit himself. pray in Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message is An Apostle's Plea to God's people. If uh, you remember three uh, three weeks ago now when we were last in Peter's letter, we noticed what an amazing thing it is to be a Christian. If you you remember, we spent some time in that uh, last message uh, just noticing that the world we live in is suffering a severe identity crisis. People in the world around us truly don't know who they are. They've been told that they've evolved in some strange way from nothingness and that they're going to nothingness. And, and so their, their story, their, their life doesn't have the, the narrative of Scripture. So they don't know who they are. They don't know their place in the world. They have no sense of, of where they are going. And so they have resorted then in that vacuum of meaning to seek to find significance in, in, for their identity in self-identity. 
that, they, uh, that people are being told that you need to sort of create your own truth, your own reality, and your own even identity. And so uh, we found that that's exactly what's going on today, and that people are, are forming an identity irregardless of any objective facts, any uh, maybe biological facts. And so no matter what gender you actually might uh, be by the created will and, of God, uh, you, you can self-identify in whatever gender and, and create your own genders. Uh, and it doesn't just pertain to gender. I, I read an article just this week of a, of a, um, of a girl uh, who, a young woman who uh, is claiming in dead earnestness to be a cat trapped in a human body. And that, again, we can chuckle at that, but we should grieve at that. We should break our hearts. That this person does not have any better sense of who they are as someone made in the image of God, made for the glory of God. A person who has a few short years in this world and then an eternity. You see, the problem with a self-identity without any reference to God, without any reference to objective and eternal truths, is that any self-identity that you create is inherently ephemeral. It's rootless, weightless, meaningless. It has no significance because it's not rooted in anything other than your fantasy. And friends, if it had not been for the grace of God, you and I would be playing the same game. Were it not for the grace of God, we would be just as blind, just as foolish, just as desperate, just as lost. And so there should be great gratitude. Uh, Why should God choose you? And then why should God give to you and give to me this incredible identity in Jesus Christ? That we have been chosen in Jesus Christ to belong to him. We saw what Peter says in verse 9 and 2. Why should we be a chosen race, God's people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession? Why should that be true of you? You did nothing whatsoever to merit it. I didn't either. And yet God in his grace has done exactly that. He's he's given us this glorious identity, identity that is fixed, an identity that is as, as unchanging as the very nature of God himself, an identity that is going to reap blessing forever and ever and ever in the presence of God. And now that Peter has established who we are, now he's going to move in his letter to talking about how we need to live out of that identity. In Sunday school class this morning, uh, I, I said that we are narrative animals. We define ourselves by the story in which we, we see ourselves. And the story that a believer is supposed to find himself in is the story of creation, fall, redemption, and recreation, of God making everything new. The, the story arc of God's uh, great purposes uh, as we see them uh, throughout Scripture and, and God's purposes in Jesus Christ. We are heirs of everlasting life in a city that God builds with his own hands. And so how do we live now as citizens of that city? How do we live as aliens in this world? See, because we have a calling on our life. There's an, there's, a, there's an obligation and an ought that lays on us because of what God has done for us. We, God has called us so that we might proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us. There's, a, there's an obligation. There's a, a, uh, an intention to this. 
The reason that God has given us this glorious identity is so that we might magnify his glorious identity. We exist in the world as God's people for that singular purpose, to magnify the excellencies of God. That's what we're here to do. Now, how are we going to do that? And Peter's going to take the rest of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 to explain what that kind of life looks like. And it's not going to be very flashy. It's going to look like um, submitting to authorities, uh, verse 13 and following. It's going to look like being subject to our husbands, chapter 3, verse 1, and honoring our wives, chapter 3, verse 7. It's going to look like suffering for righteousness' sake, 3, verse 8 and following. Nothing flashy, but, but stuff that doesn't make any sense in the eyes of the world, given what they believe to be real and true. It only makes sense if there's a Jesus, if there's a cross, if there's redemption, if there's an empty tomb, and if there really is a Father who loves us and eternity waiting for us. And so in our text tonight, we're going to have in, in, in verses 11 and 12, Peter, in a sense, laying the foundation of this new lifestyle. And uh, it's really critical we get this foundation because it's going to be undergirding everything else that's to come. I was helped in uh, my preparations of this message by a a great sermon by uh, John Piper called War Against the Soul and the Glory of God. Uh, The War Against the Soul and the Glory of God. And Piper makes the point in in that sermon that this text just touches on, deals with the two great organizing themes of Scripture. Uh, the, the reality of the lost state of man, that there's a war against the souls of men. That's a theme that runs all the way through the Bible. And then this other theme, the glory of God. And what you find is those two themes, where they intersect, you find the cross of Jesus Christ. Where the war against men is being waged now so that God is glorified both in his justice and in his mercy. God is manifestly glorious in the cross of Jesus Christ as Jesus goes and wages war for the, men, the souls of men. But uh, Peter touches then on, on, on these things, these two themes in this text. And Piper says one of the reasons that we know, that we sense that we're aliens in this world is that the world around us has no sense of the significance of exactly these two things. He says... The modern world we live in does not believe that these two issues are main primary issues. If the world believed this, if they believed that the the eternal fate of men's souls and the glory of God are the two most significant things as we find them in Scripture, the two most significant things in human history, if they believed those things, well, your newspaper and television would look a lot different. The shows that are on would be profoundly different. The theater would show vastly different sorts of movies. University would teach in a completely different style. Popular music industry would, would be producing different kinds of songs. Industry mission statements and government programs would look and sound very different than they do. And the fact is that you see that we live in a world that shows by its priorities and its values, its commitments, its standards, its preoccupations, its pleasures, that these two main things don't show up on the radar screen of what matters in the world in which we live. Again, we talked in our Sunday school class about that, that we live in the, 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 day, the world today, we live in imminent frame, that everything that matters is, is limited, constrained by what you can see, what you can touch, what's right now, what's physical, what's material, 
We've removed the supernatural, in a sense, from our frame of reference as we think about what matters in life. So if you pick up any newspaper, if you look at the magazines on the rack at the checkout counter, if you peruse the channels on your television, look, listen to the top 40 songs on your radio, you'll find that the overwhelming evidence over and over again that the two great things which concern the authors of Scripture and the great themes of God's revelation are utterly ignored and absolutely inconsequential in the world in which we live. One of the ways we sense our alien status, the, 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 the truth that we don't fit, is the things that most concern us have the least concern to the world in which we live. So how do you live in that world, in this world? Well, we live uh, recognizing this war against our soul, and we live pursuing the glory of God. Let's look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter uses very strong language. I, beloved, his heart is for these folks. They are truly his brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Peter has a keen sense that when Jesus was there on that cross, Jesus was purchasing the souls of these men and women to, to, to whom he's writing. He loves them precisely because they have been loved by God, called according to his purpose. So, beloved, I urge you, I plead with you, please listen to me. That's what he's saying. Give me your undivided attention. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Uh, the Greek word is epithumia. It generally is, uh, references uh, passions that come from our physical nature, particularly sexual passions uh, or, or uh, things involving food, gluttony. But it, it can relate to our sort of our passion to find our life in uh, the things of this world. And, and so it, it involves all the various ways that we try to to seek life by feeding the flesh, whether it be your pride, whether it be uh, your comfort, your security, your, your physical pleasure. This is certainly dealing with things as, as fundamental as pornography, romance novels, uh, the, the, the things that are being presented to you via television and, and art maybe, music, things that just appeal to your base physical instincts. Nothing wrong with desiring either of the right food or sex or, or even some comfort and security. It's with epithumia means inordinate desires, uh, natural God-given desires that have spilled out of bounds and now are just running amok in your life and they've, they've taken over. They've become the masters of your life. Paul speaks about that in Romans 6, 12. Let not sin Therefore, reign. Don't let it reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't, don't, don't let sin have that kind of power. That when it says jump, you jump. When it says go, you go. When it says sin, you sin. Paul writes again in Galatians 5, The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to. And so this is the battle we fight. And Peter knows this is not just sort of a quick runoff. Uh, you know, just, he's not just saying just stop sinning. He's saying there's a battle to fight. And it's, and it's a real battle. There's a, there's a war to be waged because it, they're warring against you. These, these desires are dangerous. 
They're even deadly. They're out to do you spiritual harm. There's nothing innocent about them. Matthew Henry writes, the grand mischief that sin does is that it wars against our soul. It destroys the moral liberty of the soul. It weakens and debilitates the soul by impairing its faculties. In other words, it, it, it makes you stupid spiritually. And you do things and think things and give yourself to things that if you just, a moment's reflection would, would show you the utter stupidity of whatever it is you're pursuing. Sin does that. It robs the soul of comfort and peace. It hinders its present prosperity and plunges it into everlasting misery. Now once again, here you find that uh, where we are so much out of step with this world, where the world doesn't have a sense that there's a war being waged against their soul in this context. They don't, they don't sense that their soul is being destroyed when they indulge in their flesh. There was a time, uh, we, again, as we talked in, in, in our class this morning, in, in 1500, people had a sense that if they were sinning in some known way, that they were probably doing something very bad uh, to their eternal state, that, that there would be consequences at some point. That's, that's gone. In fact, not only is that gone, that's just not plausible to, to suggest to people that, that uh, by engaging in the thing that you desire, that you want, that you uh, just going after serving your flesh, that there will be eternal devastating consequences to that for your soul is not a category that people are, are, are thinking in. They just, it just doesn't, it doesn't, gen, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't get traction. And so Piper again says this. So, the, so here we have one of the great issues of the world. It affects everybody without exception and it affects everybody forever and it affects every everybody forever in an ultimately serious way and yet our world does not give serious attention to it there's no column in the newspaper there's no public service announcement on the radio there's no soundbite on television there's no values clarification course in our schools there's no government agency or even a welfare pamphlet that counsels us how to wage war for the eternal life of our souls and that is intriguing it's it's bewildering maybe you could say in light of the fact all the things that we are warned about so we're told how to wage war against AIDS, against sunstroke, against mosquitoes, against drunk driving and pollen and depression and rape and fire and theft and cholesterol and even dandelions. But the world we live in gives no counsel on how to fight for the eternal life of the soul. In fact, they will laugh at you if you suggest there ought to be counsel on this. We're aliens. We are pilgrims. We're citizens of a world that is yet to come. And Peter says in this world, where it doesn't make any sense to the rest of the world, we are to abstain, resist. It matters. It matters because your soul matters. It's inherently, eternally serious. And it matters because of the glory of God. And that's the second point he makes, that we are to live for the glory of God. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and friends, that is going to happen your simple Christianity and your simple Christian convictions are going to be increasingly seen as immoral, as evil, as you dare to stand with the Word of God. But Peter says, do that so they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And once again, Peter, as we've seen all through this letter, so wonderfully balances 
his, his, his words. So in verse 11, we have a, a negative command, abstain from the flesh. And then in verse 12, a positive command, live for the glory of God. That abstain, that the, the God-honoring Christian life isn't just saying no to the passions of the flesh. It is that as the grace of God leads us. But it's, it's doing that for a reason. You see, a, a, a good Buddhist monk can say no to epithemia. He can learn through just sheer uh, will and self-control how to keep himself from ex- those sins of the flesh, at least externally. But Christian godliness abstains from the one because it's hungering for something else. That's why Jesus says, doesn't say, blessed are, are those who um, have attained uh, perfection, who, who, who have learned how to say no to sin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're hungry for something. Longing for something. They want the righteousness of God to be part of their own life. And so Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Notice it's among the Gentiles, not to go scatter off and live in a commune. It might sound uh, appealing at times. But we're to live in this world, not of it, but in it. But we're to be here on purpose, with intention. Living honorable lives. Why? So that, again, that word, that concept, so that even though they slander you now, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. And for Peter, that's a beautiful thought. That we get to be people who in some way in our lives bring glory to God on the day when Jesus Christ returns. That's the goal. That's what we're after in our life. The goal of human behavior then is to be that we might glorify God. And you see, if we live our lives in, in such a way that there's, there's really no reference points to God or, or nothing that would strike people as out of step with this age, you, you see, then we're feeling our purpose. The world needs to see people whose lives don't make sense given their categories, given their imminent frame. That people who's, and at first they might just think it's weird, but that, that there's something about it that it's not just weird. There's, there's weight. You see, glory means weight. It means, the kabod is the, is the Hebrew word. It means significance. It means worth. I read a fascinating article a couple weeks ago by a lady, not a Christian, but who had an affair. Her husband also then had an affair. And she's writing a letter warning to other ladies. And she said, the, after the affair, she says, when it's found out, and you, and you will be found out, what you're left with, that, that hotel room that was such a, an oasis in your life, that was such a, a jewel, it's going to look like war-torn Kosovo. Just shot full of holes, everything broken, everything wrecked. And she says, I think about my parents, married for 55 years. Nothing flashy, just gentle, ongoing faithfulness. And all the fruit that comes from that. And I sit in my war-torn hotel room, and there is not a single view worth having from here. That's exactly right. See, that's what sin does. Not a single view worth having. And yet we live in a world where people act as if you can 
pursue the passions of your flesh. You can run after. You see, the devil's just got people so upside down. You can run after your self-identity. You can run after your, your self-whatever, your self-pleasure. Your... And, there, and there's life there, and it's all a big lie. There's nothing but death there. And what's happened, you see, is that we've lost sense of, of as a culture, what matters. We've lost sense of the glory of God. David Wells has written a book, uh, God in the Wasteland. He says it's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He's lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters that they believe in God, right? When the pollsters go out and say, do you believe in God? Right? A nice 80% will ring back yes. Nonetheless, Wells said, they consider him less interesting than television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. It's a condition we've assigned to him after having nudged him out of the periphery of our secularized life. His truth is no longer welcome in our public discourse. The engine of modernity rubbles on, and he is but a speck in its path. See, and to be an alien then in this world is to recognize that that's the world in which we live, where, the God, where God does not have weight. And we're to be people in the world to show forth the weight of God, the significance of God, of God, the glory of the God who is, the God who created, the God who rules, the God who saves, the God who judges, the God who's going to roll this whole thing up at the end of, of, of time and pronounce judgment and grant his eternal life to those who came in Jesus Christ. And it's immensely significant in a world that thinks it's immensely inconsequential. We're to be people who swim upstream. In this next week, have eyes to see the inconsequential nature of almost everything the world is talking about, worrying about, delighting in, fearing, hoping in. This week, the news will be full of the upcoming Super Bowl. There'll be endless conversations and dialogue and debate about players and teams and parties and advertisements and television sets. And all of it, you see, is just a perfect snapshot of our age. It, it's as nearly inconsequential as, as anything could possibly be in light of eternity. You see, on the, on the last day when men and women stand before God in the presence of the living God who is full of glory and realize that they were more enthusiastic about their sports team than they were about the God who created them, the God of all glory, when they realize how they wasted their life pursuing things of utter thing, inconsequentiality, they're going to be astonished they could have been so blind. How, how could it be that that we were more concerned about television sets and tan lines than God. How could we miss it? Why didn't someone tell us? You see, we're, we're to be those people who live in a way that we're shouting with our life, there's something more, there's something significant, there's, there's a God who is weighty, who's glorious, who's good. How, how are you going to do that? Well, let's wrap it up with this. Peter goes um, 
as I said in the next chapter and a half, and in talking about this, I'm just giving you a little snapshot of it tonight so we have a sense of it. it. It looks like a changed heart that has a changed set of values and and things that matter, and, and, and there's going to be fruit then that comes from that, that looks, it's just inexplicable to the world. So, for instance, Peter's going to talk in chapter 3, verse 4, about women. Uh, women, the world implores you to exalt in your physical beauty, that you exist to be beautiful, you exist for the, for the, the, the eyes of men. And that's where your glory is found. That's the world's telling you all the time, nonstop. That's where your beauty is. That's where your, what, that's where your value is. That's where your significance is. You matter according to how you look. And billions of dollars are spent on this, and hours of anxiety and effort are wasted on, on simply this one thing, you see, pursuing what the world says is valuable. But God says this, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You see, you're not, you're not just dressed in dowdy clothes. Uh, I mean, God made you beautiful. It's okay to be beautiful, but it's not your life. It's not what you're to, you're to pursue. Clothe that inner self, you see, with, with the beauty that God delights in. The world might think you're boring. God thinks it's magnificent. And, and men, you see, the world encourages you to be a, a man, a real man, to exercise authority over your wife. Uh, be unapologetic about getting your way and getting your needs met. And don't worry about a little window shopping as long as you're buying at home. It's okay. No, it's not. Not if, not if you're a citizen of heaven. Not if you're going to glorify God. Likewise, husbands, verse 7, chapter 3, live with your wives in an understanding way and showing honor, honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Your friends at work are going to think you're stupid, that you're, you're just a pushover. The Lord will think you're, you're getting it, that you understand that you're living a life that pleases Him. Are you being subjected to unjust, unkind behavior? Somebody maybe has lied about you. Someone has uh, gossiped about you. Someone cut you off on the expressway, stole your good idea, smeared your reputation. The world says get mad, get even. God says, verse 9, don't repay evil for evil. On the contrary, bless, for to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. You want to stand out in the world? Bless people when they lie about you, when they gossip about you. Bless them, love them, forgive them. You see, there's to be something about our life that is just inexplicable. So that, that, that people maybe would ask and be, wonder, what, what, what are you hoping at? What are you living for? Verse 15 says that, in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You see, your, your, your actions re reveal what you are hoping and what your goals are, what your convictions are, what you've set your, your life on. Things that you think are worthy of your time and pursuit. And, and when the world sees us acting strangely with humble love and with inner peace and calm in the face of trials or, or just being honest about how hard it is and yet we trust that God is there and God is good and God is going to be faithful. When, you, when we live with self-denying generosity and, and, 
and genuine concern for other people, even though maybe we don't even know them, and heartfelt gratitude for even little things. They might sneer, they might slander, but one day they're going to recognize that was about the glory of God. That you were saying with your life that there's something more worthy than your looks and your reputation, and there's something more satisfying than your comfort, your security. There's something more valuable than your pleasure or your success. That your hope for life is God. Peter says in 121, our faith and our hope are in God. And the question then is, is it? Is it? Is that what we're living for? I pray that it is, and I know that it's often not. And so as we leave here tonight, after a good day, let's just commit ourselves to that again. Lord, be my vision. Be the Lord of my heart. May nothing else matter to me save that you are the Lord, the God. And let my life be used in any way that you choose to to honor you, to magnify you, to make you look good. That's God's desire. That's what Jesus Christ has died to accomplish in our lives. He didn't simply die to forgive us. He He died to transform us, to make us people who live in this world as citizens of the one to come, pointing to the glory of our God. May God grant it. Amen. Lord Jesus, we need your help because we live in a a secular age and every message that this culture gives us is wrong. And yet we listen, we're formed and shaped and molded by it and oh God, we want to be molded by the realities of the gospel. That's why we come to church and we open the Bible and we We take some time to study it week after week because we want these things, Lord God, to be defining realities of our life. And we confess, Lord, that we've sinned against you. We've given very little thought to living a life that glorifies God. We've been passionate about a thousand things and sometimes even very sinful things and not this, this critical one thing. So forgive us, Lord, forgive us. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us a deep sense of of joy and confidence and just gladness that we've been called to this. You've called us. And in our own simple ways, we can live for the glory of God as we love our wife and honor our husband, respect our husband, as we submit to to authorities, as we're patient and gracious and kind as we're thankful, as we forgive our enemies and do good to those who persecute us. Lord, I pray that our life could in some way bring glory and honor to Jesus. That's our desire. We pray that you'd grant it in Jesus' name. Amen.